Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast. Good to have you here listening again. I'm your host, Nick Penizzato, here as always with the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. And we got a great show for you today. We're going to talk to Bo Martonic, a name that you have, uh, many of you have probably heard at this point as his popularity continues to rise. Uh, he's from the East Meets West podcast. And also, uh, most recently was announced he's doing some writing for Meat Eater now. And we're going to get into a lot of cool stuff with Bo. We're going to talk a little bit of mountain hunting. Going to talk about a big deer that he killed. Uh, just a, a whole host of things I think that will continue to raise your excitement level as we continue to move forward toward the next hunting season. And Mike, we have some housekeeping uh, out of the gate here that we got to take care of. And uh, before we jump into those, though, I, I do want to tell you here in a few mo moments, we are going to do the Ask NDA Anything segment. And we got responses. So that proves that we do indeed actually have listeners. That is good to hear. I'm excited to hear the very first inaugural question for Ask NDA Anything. Well, I can tell you it wasn't easy to pick one, but I think I picked one that we'll have some fun with. But anyway, our sponsor for today's show is our friends at OnX. And quick story about OnX, Mike, that's actually very timely since, since they're our sponsor today. I'm an avid OnX uh, user. I put everything on it, everything from my stand locations, trail cameras, uh, proper stuff I'm doing on the property. And so I have to admit, I think I've kind of taken it for granted because a couple of weeks ago I was due for a renewal and there was a little bit of a glitch. And so I had to go, it was either two or three days without my Onyx. And I got to admit, I was going through a little bit of withdrawal. Uh, so I, I really uh, it helped remind me how important of a tool that is. Well, for me, there has been times where I have let my subscription expire just because of life. And I'm telling you what, when that happens during hunting season or if it's scouting season, it doesn't take long to re-up that subscription. So I, I can completely understand where you're coming from. Well, we did get it straightened out and I'm back in business again, but it was frustrating. But you know, I, I do use the Onyx tool a lot. I use it for measuring areas. As a matter of fact, uh, doing some food plot work, I use it to uh, measure the areas out there so I know how much seed to put down, uh, all the other things I told you that I use it for. Uh, it's a great tool. But the other thing that's really cool about Onyx, and, and one of the reasons we've been such good partners, is they're not just a mapping app. That's, that's what we use it for mostly, but they're also very innovative. They're very, very conservation focused. They give a lot back to conservation and uh, help us do things like put together a layer for chronic wasting disease, which is something they've done for us recently. And we're continuing to work on that to try to make it even better among other things. So uh, folks, if you're not already an Onyx user and you're a deer hunter of any type, I'm telling you, there's a use, this is a very useful tool. So check it out again, Onyx, the uh, big longtime sponsor of the NDA. So I want to thank the folks at Onyx for that. Also, we're still continuing to offer our membership special for people listening to the podcast. So if you go to the deerassociation.com web website and renew your membership or sign up for a new membership, maybe you're not a member yet, be sure to use the code podcast and you can get $5 off a membership. So, and, and by the way, and I didn't mention this before, but I should have, if you're already an existing member and you buy another membership with the $5 off, 
you don't lose any of that time. We just add that on to your membership. So again, take advantage of that membership offer. Again, using the code podcast, it doesn't matter if it's uppercase or lowercase, that will work. Mike, I teased the Ask NDA Anything, and we did get a response. We got, we got several responses, and I had to sort through these things and pick one that I thought would be sort of the most fun and interesting. And so it made me wonder, though, should I be doing multiples of these? Should I just be picking out what I think the best one is? I'm not sure. But this time, I just decided to pick one. What are your thoughts on it? I think that's exciting that listeners want to know more about the NDA or what we're doing or a question that we or someone that we know might be able to answer. So how we're going to do that, I think that's at this point in time, rather up in the air, but random order and being fair is always a good way to go. But beyond that, as this section of the podcast grows, we can always come up with a strategic answer that fits the situation, I think. Well, I think not having any hard rules allows us to break the rules or change the rules on the regular. And so since it's our stuff we're giving away, uh, we've reserved the right to change the rules. <laughs> so there are no rules just yet. And so what I decided this time, though, was just pick one that I thought was interesting. And uh, we may read more than more than one of these as we continue to get a bigger response in our inbox. But here's one I'm going to read. And this comes from uh, Justin Garant. Uh, Justin wrote in, Justin, thank you for the question. And uh, by the way, we need to, if you're listening to this, you need to get us your address so that we can send you, in this case, it's going to be an NDA hat. Uh, So we'll go ahead and send you an NDA hat. But he actually sent several questions, but the one I'm going to ask is, and this one's a little more fun. It says, if it was your last day of hunting, which species would you hunt with what tactics and what type of weapon to acquire that last final animal? And it can be anywhere on this planet. So that's a thought-provoking question. And, and Mike, I'm going to go first because you're only hearing this for the first time. I've seen this. I, I was aware of it for a few days. So let's see. Uh, what would I hunt? Last thing I could hunt. Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to go ahead and maybe this is a boring answer, but it's going to be white-tailed deer. That was the first animal I was really excited about hunting growing up. And I, I do get asked similar questions on occasion about, hey, what, what's your favorite thing to hunt? If you could hunt anywhere, what would you do? And I always go back to deer and I'm also going to maybe surprise you and not give you some exotic wild place, Uh, but it would be hunting deer in the same places where I grew up hunting deer as a kid. Now I've lost access to some of those places because other people bought the property and it's, it's no longer open. But if I could, uh, if I could have one last day of hunting, it would be to relive some of those memories of my childhood, hunting white-tailed deer with my bow uh, on those properties. So that is, that's my answer, I guess my tactic, I already mentioned I'd use the bow tactics would be, uh, I'd probably go in with my old climbing Baker tree stand just to add to the nostalgia, although I would include a safety harness, (laughs) Uh, maybe a couple of them for that unit. And that's what I would do. So that's my answer, Mike, what are you thinking? Well, I'm going to be different. And because I had a moment to think about this and my knee jerk reaction is going to be grouse hunting. And with or without a dog, prefer with a dog because I always appreciate great dog work. But I think because we haven't had a lot of grouse in the area anymore, and I have seriously been lacking that in my hunting diet, if you will, I miss grouse hunting. And I like 
being able to cover ground. I like to appreciate nature at that time of the year, that mid to late October timeframe is just breathtaking. And to be behind a good dog and put on some miles and see some country and appreciate such a, uh, like a, I call it a bellwether species when the habitat is habitat is really good. That's when you really see grouse in most situations. I think that would be my, if I was going to hang it up after that day, when I got in, my feet were probably sore, my boots were probably wet and my legs were tired. I'd, I'd put the over and under shotgun down, give the dog some water, get it fed, sit down and be as content as you can possibly imagine. I find it interesting that we both kind of pick things that are, I don't want to say completely unavailable to us, but not as available to us as they once were. So in my case, it's still deer hunting, but it's on properties that I don't have access to anymore. And in your case, it's grouse hunting and it's a species that you still have access to, but not quite the same way or in the same place as you have in the past. So very thought provoking question there, Justin. Uh, I'll just give you all a hint here. If you if you write in with questions and they're kind of unique like that, and it might be something to catch us off guard, you're going to have a better chance of getting your question read here on the show. Uh, if you have a question that's like, uh, oh, hey, what's Kip Adams really like in person? <laughs> uh, I'll probably just bring Kip on the show and you can and you can hear him, but um, it, that's probably not going to get you a prize. So uh, think outside the box, give us unique questions, and we'll continue to have fun with them. That's what this is all about. Uh, Mike, we were together this past week at uh, the Deer Association. We put together or put on a habitat module training course, and it was local to us. It was at the Bearded Buck property, and uh, folks have heard of or seen the Bearded Buck television show. They're great partners of ours. They're on Sportsman Channel. Uh, they hosted us. We had uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 students. We lit some fields on fire. We built or burnt two one-acre fields. We did a whole bunch of other hands-on habitat work, cut some trees down, uh, learned how to use things like a no-till drill, among other things. Uh, it was a really great course. It was great to see people and interact with folks from all over the country who were doing uh, conservation on their own properties. And I, I just, I had a great time. How about you? I did. It was great food, great people, great venue. And what I appreciated about the habitat module advancing from the level two steward course was the amount of hands-on. We were not in the classroom very long. And when we were, it was really good quality, nuts and bolts, scientifically based information that we can use. I mean, and when we say scientific based information, people kind of tune you out, but I will have to say at one point I turned to you as Dr. Craig Harper was talking and I said, I get it. He actually synthesized some information that had never had a chance to make sense in my head until the way that he presented it. And I got it. And I'm like, oh, thank God. Cause it, it really is going to help me moving forward on my place. So when we were in the classroom, it was useful, but the rest of it was all outside hands-on let's get our fingers dirty and let's go. And I appreciated that. Yeah, it was a great course. And folks, if you haven't taken Deer Steward 1 or Deer Steward 2 uh, or any of the habitat modules, always pay attention to our website when we're holding those courses because they're great opportunities. Uh, in this case, the instructors were Matt Ross, Kip Adams, and Dr. Craig Harper. And uh, the, the students really had a great time. We made a lot of friends as well. And so I just wanted to mention that. Let's get to Bo Martonic, our guest for today. Mike, we go a little different direction with Bo than what you may have heard 
front on other podcasts. He's been on a, on a number of other podcasts. I think the first place I ever heard heard of him was on the uh, Wired to Hunt podcast. And so we always try to ask guests like that some different types of questions. I think we accomplished that here. And he's also going to tell us the story of uh, the giant buck that he shot in Pennsylvania last winter, which is a really cool story. And uh, I, I found it to be a really engaging and fun conversation. Yeah, Bo is an interesting character. I think that he has uh, a lot of good information from either his mentors or from his own real world experience. Don't let his age fool you. I'm, I was even telling you, he got me excited to get back up into the mountains, something that I used to do years ago. And so I think if you really listen to what he has to say, and if it's something that you're interested in, his, um, his podcast, his website, and just his information in general is going to be useful to you. Well, let's hear some of it from the man himself. Let's go ahead in and bring in Bo Martonic. I want to welcome to the Coffee and Deer Show, Bo Martonic from East Meets West Hunt. He's a podcaster. He's a, a real authority on hunting the mountains, uh, these remote, mostly public land areas, uh, some really cool stuff we're going to talk about there. He's also, in my view, an influencer, and don't let that scare you. I, I don't want to offend you either, Bo, because influencer <laughs> has taken on a bit of a bad name, uh, but, I, but I mean that in a sincere way in that uh, he you're legit. Uh, this your your influencing is based on real results, and I've been hunting for thirty plus years, as is the doctor over there. And uh, we want we want to know what you have to say, and we're learning from you, and uh, that's that's all part of it. So, uh, and also we're kind of neighbors. We we found out as part of this, we're all three of us, ironically here, are Pennsylvanians, and uh, you're just a couple hours north of us. So, uh, is that where you're at right now? Yeah. Yeah. I'm still in the same location. I moved away for a little while down by Pittsburgh and now I'm back up North. So. So Bo, if you don't mind, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you and what you've been up to? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And, and all the kind words there, but I I'm from uh, Northern Pennsylvania. So as I, we were kind of talking about there, I grew up here uh, my whole life in the, in the middle of the, basically the Pennsylvania wilds and grew up in a hunting family so my entire family are, are nuts for deer hunting and specifically um, archery hunting quite a bit as well as rifle hunting too but definitely a big archery influence which from a, a very young age I started shooting archery and and shooting tournaments when I was just a, a young kid with some of my uncles and everything and and my dad just lives for deer hunting so I I really didn't have much of a choice to be honest I I, I was uh, just always in it and we have a strong as Pennsylvania has a really strong hunting heritage with deer camps and everything and it's funny because we have a deer camp although it's within a mile of my parents house so our deer camp where a lot of people are going further away to kind of you know go to the mountains to have their deer camp well we live there so it's just a, a place for all of us to gather and uh so yeah i've grown up grown up doing it and it really took until um in high school i ended up quitting most of the sports that i was playing like i just i didn't uh, re-up as i got into my junior and senior year and just started because that was during hunting season when I'd play football and 
some other things and I just, I just wanted to hunt. So I got into a pretty, pretty serious around that time. <laughs> yeah. I'll say if you're willing to give up your sports and everything else, uh, just, just to be in the outdoors and hunting. And as far as your camp being right up the road, uh, you know, I think it's just being somewhere other than in the house that matters, whether you drive five yeah. hours or five minutes, right? Yep. That's, that's exactly right. So we've left some meat on the bone here too, in terms of your background and all the things you're doing. Uh, if anybody just searches your name in hunting, they're going to find articles in all different types of publications. You've written a lot about the Pennsylvania wilds in particular. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, East meets West and how that came about, but uh, you've covered a lot of topics and now also writing for meat eater. So it's been quite the journey for you, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's been wild because I was, I got into writing, um, I think it was in like 2017, somewhere around that range. I'd started hunting out West in 2016 and I just wrote a bunch of notes in my phone when I was out there about the trip and the adventure and everything. And I wrote it, just ended up writing a story mostly for myself to remember it. And I submitted it to an online publication called the journal mountain hunting, which is actually a Canadian, um, publication. And they ran it as a subscriber story and I titled it East meets West and just explaining the process of coming from the East and going out there and giving it a shot. And, and, um, Adam, the editor was like, Hey, I, I like your writing style and your unique perspective. So it gave me an opportunity to write more. So I started doing that and it just kind of opened up some other doors, um, for me. I started, um, well, actually right after that, it was, I had my girlfriend at the time had killed a really big deer in Pennsylvania and it was one of the biggest ones killed that year in the state. And then I'd killed a nice one right after that. So Peterson's bow hunting had reached out to me to write an article on each of those deer. And, uh, and then from there it just kind of snowballed and just started writing more for Peterson's and then some different online publications just kind of came up. And then recently uh, when Meat Eater reached out to me, that was kind of like the the pinnacle of um, doing some writing there. So I was really excited about that that opportunity. Yeah, I remember seeing the, the press release about that. And obviously, we've got a great relationship with Meat Eater and a good partnership there. And it just uh, made me smile a little bit knowing about uh, knowing what you're up to. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, sometimes it can just do that. It can just sort of snowball. I've always said, hey, I'd be interested in your opinion on this. Uh, you see some of these giant deer that are taken in different places in the country where they're frankly, part of it is just, there are more of them available. And I've always felt like in some of these high pressure States, like the one we live in the Michigans of the world and others uh, that come to mind, if you're shooting older deer in those States, it, it almost doesn't matter what it is, what they're carrying headgear wise. And we're going to talk about your deer, a deer you shot here recently as an example uh, a deer as old as the one that you shot in another state is probably 180 inches, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so you're, I mean, I think you're just finally, you're getting the recognition for the type of the things you're pulling off here in a high pressure state. And um, so I just knowing what it's like to hunt these areas, uh, I have a real appreciation for that as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks. It's, it's funny because I mean, I, I definitely got lucky with my family being so into it that I learned a lot and I was trying to be like a sponge, you know, following my dad around the woods until, until I think it was like my last year of high school, he cut the cord and was like, all right, you got to find your own spots. You got to do your own thing. 
I'm tired of you trying to shoot at my deer. You know, it's time for you to, to go out on your own. And that was probably the best thing that happened to me because I just had to, had to learn it and try to pick up on the things that he taught me and my uncles and my grandfather and just piece it all together to kind of create my own style and of, of deer hunting. And what I learned was like in a state like Pennsylvania, it's just like, you got to put a lot of time in to, to figuring out these deer and, or at least trying to figure out these deer. <laughs> so, Bo, I'm going to jump in and I want to, and hopefully this works out, give your dad his five minutes of fame. I heard a story. I heard actually a comment that you made where you were asked to act or speak as a mountain hunting specialist. And I'm sorry, that's not correct. The person asked you, who would be a good person to be a mountain hunting specialist? And you said, Johnny Stewart and my dad. And it seems like your dad is this lone wolf kind of rogue guy that really is, you know, you have a lot of respect for, but doesn't really seem to get his due. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes here and just tell us a little bit about your dad, because when we hear you talk on your podcast or other podcasts, your dad comes up, but he's kind of this guy that's kind of on the fringe. So let's yeah. give him his, his just desserts here. Yeah. My dad is, he's a quiet guy and isn't one that, you know, wants much recognition or anything like that. He's just a person that works extremely hard for hunting. I mean, he's probably right now out in the woods scouting and checking cameras and, and just always just, working towards it. I mean, he just puts more time in than anybody that I know. And I've just always looked up to him and respected him for that. And he just, he doesn't, he's, he's so secretive on most of his stuff. Like when I finally got him to be able to come on my podcast, like it took a lot and a little bit of whiskey to get him to start talking and, uh, you know, sharing his information. But I mean, he, he, he's forgot a lot more than I know. And I just try to constantly learn from him i mean what, what's cool about like his hunting style is that he just kind of looks at every situation and doesn't he's not influenced by any sort of media or how you should hunt or what you should do he just does it based off of what he sees whether that's hunting on the ground and still hunting with a bow through some clear cuts walking logging roads and calling or that might be sitting in the same tree for five days, depending on how he looks at the situation. And that's where I really try to, to learn from him. And, and it just seems like no matter what, every single year, he just gets it done. It might be, or it might be the first day, like he did a couple of years ago, or it might be the last day. It's just, it, at some point you can usually count on him, him getting it done. So that's, that's it. But it's funny because when, when Mark um, had asked about that for people to be on his show, you know, I, I said my dad, you know, to do it. And then he, he respectfully declined um, to, to be on the show there. And uh, so I was the, I guess I was the backup. <laughs> Which, well, if it sounds, you know, from what I've, I'm always someone that reads between the lines and from what it sounds like being a backup to someone like your dad probably isn't a bad place to be. I mean, he's got no. what sounds like a lot of old school Pennsylvania. You know, if you have, if you're on a buck, you keep your mouth shut. Speaking of cutting the cord, which is how you described it. Whenever he basically said you're out on your own, you got this crazy idea that you wanted to, I'm going to call it extreme whitetail hunting, right? You wanted to go and, pursue deer in the Pennsylvania wilds, very mountainous type region, very desolate in places. Um, 
I can't think of a bigger challenge when it comes to trying to get on a big deer than to do it in a, a high pressure state with the type of terrain that there is. And also this is not, let's be honest, this is not a state that's known for big deer. Yeah. Uh, most largely because they don't get old enough to be big deer. So what, what drove you to do that, to, to take that approach? Well, I, I started, I started noticing that there was older deer that are starting to grow in some of these remote areas. And I mean, the, the forests are getting healthier, they're getting thicker, you know, there's more feed for them. There just seem to be better than they were, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And they're able to, to make some of that, you know, mature age classes. And I just loved the idea of it. And the idea that like, there are some really big deer that can live in these places that just people don't think that there are. And I've just heard it so much, you know, Pennsylvania is a, a, a deer hunting state that's not known for quality and all this stuff. And, and now they're, there's definitely, they're not around every tree, but there is that potential there. And I, I just had been drawn to it. I think when I, when I went to college and then even afterwards, I lived down by Pittsburgh and I was hunting some of these places and, and I just, loved the remoteness and not being around people and and being able to get away and just hunt deer in kind of their natural habitat so that's really what what drove me to to doing it and like I said once you know you can't hunt deer that aren't there so it was just it was really for me I love scouting like in the spring scouting is my I like that probably just as much as hunting season because I just go to new areas and try to find that next level type of type of deer and and uh it can be frustrating at times but it's 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 fun at the same time the doctor and i sometimes find ourselves in some of these expansive state game lands and uh, we describe it as it's really a math problem right you have so much land area and it'd be impossible for anybody to cover the whole thing so just mathematically there has to be a mature deer or two or a few in some of these areas. And I think that's really what your focus is. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I've learned too, that just because it is the most remote place that that doesn't mean that there's really big deer there. Now, I guess it depends on how you define big deer. If you're defining old deer, then you can find them really in any of those big expansive landscapes. But you, you got to have the the right mix of diversity and vegetation and food to really help them with their headgear a little bit as well. So that's what I've learned. I've hunted some areas of the PA wilds that is just really, really remote where you have to backpack in and do stuff like that, but it's areas that don't get logged or they don't, it's just old growth forests that have kind of drowned out everything underneath growing up and, and, you know, the, the food isn't there as much as, as some of these other places. So I, I try to find that, that mixture of, you know, the, the vast landscapes, as well as having the, the right food for them to, to congregate to and grow. We're going to point people a little bit later here in the show to some of your vast resources of information where you very generously share a lot of the things you've learned by just wearing out boot leather out there. And so we'll come back to that. But while we're talking about big deer and as we're starting to steamroll toward hunting season, I'd like you, if, if, if you would, to share with us the story of the outstanding Pennsylvania buck that you took here recently 
Uh, I saw pictures of this thing and had people asking, hey, did you see that that buck that, that Bo Martonic shot in Pennsylvania? And it's really impressive and it's a neat story. And you also have a little short film uh, on your site and on your YouTube channel called The Long Haul, which is really cool. I've, I've watched it actually several times now. Uh, so I'll shut up and just I want to hear the story of that deer. It's pretty awesome how it turned out. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to I'm going to start by stepping it back just a little bit. So I was hunting a I was hunting a different deer that I just all I became completely obsessed with and and was just trying really hard. I went through um, early October trying to figure out where he was living. I'd get him on some of my cameras and he was just seemed like I couldn't pin him down. And I got I was sitting over the scrape on October 30th. I was off work. And everything just seemed dead. Like the scrapes weren't opened up like they normally would be. And I was like, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to make a shift and try to go to where I know some does bed in this cut. So I was kind of sneaking along with my bow. And all of a sudden this doe came running out of this cut. And while I was standing on the ground and right, right away, I could hear some grunting behind her. So I, I went to full draw and was down on one knee and she almost ran me over. And this little four point came behind her and then this big 10 point that, that I was after. And I had, I stopped him at 15 yards, but there was some brush and I, and I couldn't get the shot. And right. I didn't get, once he moved into the spot where I needed, I didn't get the shot off quick enough and never ended up getting to release an arrow before he chased after that doe again. So I was pretty heartbroken and spent the rest of the season trying to get on him. And it was always just one step behind. And, so go through archery season. I still had my tag in my pocket and came into the, the gun season. And I, I was still trying to trying to hunt him. And it was Friday night at camp. So we were sitting at our camp and my buddy, Johnny Stewart, who you had mentioned here earlier, um, he was, we were sitting there together and we both had buck tags in our pocket. He's like, you know, why don't we just go out together and have, you know, have some fun. And my dad's like, yeah, I can come along with you and we can go out and, and, you know, ha have some fun together and hunt an area. And Johnny's like, I have this spot uh, that, which I'd been there with him before. And he's like, there's, there's one deer in particular. That's really, that's pretty old that it was living in there, but I haven't seen him on camera in a few months. And there's a couple other ones. Well, anyways, long story short. He's like, let's, let's go in there and see what we can do. And, and when we were in there, we were running into people all over on the, the tops of the hills, but there was just a real steep hillside that ran down to this uh, uh, stream at the bottom. And, and there was some oaks down towards the, the bottom third of the hill and then some thick hemlocks out in this point. And just the, the wind was blowing perfect. It was coming, I believe it was from the Northwest and, blowing off of that point and it would be perfect for them to bed out there. And so him and I went down off of that point. He sat towards the top and I sat down a little bit lower on this little, just minor bench that you couldn't even see on the map and just off the edge of that thick cover. And so my dad came around the other side and was kind of just wandering through trying to wind bump any deer that would potentially be in that place. And he came through and, and all I was just watching, just panning with my eyes back and forth. And, and, uh, I caught a glimpse of an antler coming out of, uh, out of those hemlocks that were out in that point. And just as I was getting my gun ready, 
he stepped out and it, it didn't take much to be able to see the, the rack on him. He was only 20, 22 yards away. And I was able to, to pull up my gun on him and, and shoot him right there. And just when, when he just, when he fell over, I was just like, absolutely ecstatic. I, I, uh, let out a little bit of a yell and, uh, and my dad came just running through the woods and I think he tripped and fell about three times in a 50 yard window. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I had just enough cell service to be able to get a call out because Johnny was above and I called him and, and he's like, did you shoot a deer? I said, yeah. I said, I, I shot this, you know, big, big deer. He's like, is it, is it the big nine? And I was like, yeah, it is. And, and he came down and, and, um, it was funny because that deer, I think it was three years, four years before that Johnny came to my house with a camera card that he found a camera he had left in the woods. He forgot about, and he found it when he was scouting in like February. And he's like, Hey, can we can I plug this into your computer to be able to look at it? And that deer was on there in rifle season at that spot, um, four years prior and um so it was just funny and we're like wow that's a really nice looking deer and you know he was at at that point he was probably four years old and um yeah so when i ended up sending in the the teeth on mine he came back at eight and a half years old wow that's Um, incredible yeah so it was it was just unbelievable to to be able to well to be able to have that shoot that deer with my dad there with my buddy Johnny, who was gracious enough to take us into, you know, his spot. And like, I mean, he called the shots on that perfect. And, and that, that deer I owe to the two of them more than myself. I was just a lucky guy that was sitting there at the time, but it was, it was really, really incredible. So when one of the Martonic family shoot a deer post-harvest, what is the celebration like? Like, What's the process? I mean, like walk us through from the second that deer hits the ground until you wake up the next day wondering, did that really happen? Yeah. So we have, when, when a deer is down, you know, well, we're we're definitely, you know, celebrating because all of us, you know, live for that, that moment and just crazy how things have happened that fast. And, and it, with this buck specifically, uh, we had two ways of getting them out is either go back up over the mountain or go down across the, the, there was a river at the bottom and then up the other side till we halfway up until there was a road. And I was like, Hey, I want to, I'm going to cut them up and I'm going to pack them out. And, and so quarter them up, take the meat out and, and the head. And, and Johnny's like, no, we need everybody at camp to see this full deer. And it's, it's form. Like, this is a beautiful deer. And I was like, okay. So I guess we're taking them down over the, the hill here. And I said, I believe that river's pretty deep. Like I remember going across it early in the fall and he's like, ah, we should be okay. So him and my dad left and I drug him down off the, the hill and down to the water. And, and I looked at it and I'm like, this is over a hundred feet across and it looks deep. And I had a pair of hip boots in the truck that Johnny wore to come over to help and grab my stuff. Well, I was going to take the deer across and I, took some paracord and I actually tied the deer to my belt loop just to make sure the river didn't take him downstream. I said, if he's going, I'm going down with it. And, uh, we got it across and, you know, got it, got it up into the truck and 
I, I went home and changed first because I was soaking wet. It was, you know, it was up to almost my waist as I was going across there and it was snow on the ground at the time, but we got to camp. And then at that point, the word had gotten out that, that I'd shot this deer and just vehicles after vehicles are, are pouring in and we have the truck sitting in the back of the, or the, the deer sitting in the back of the truck right out in front of camp. And as it got dark, we have a big spotlight out there that, that points down on it. And one of my best friends had killed a really nice deer too. So we had his sitting there right next to it. And there was a lot of, a lot of beer drinking and a lot of stories being told <laughs> till, till late in the night. And, um, yeah, then, then, uh, it was very, very cold night there. The next, next morning woke up and, and processed them and, and got it all taken care of with a slight headache, I would say. <laughs> there's a, a neat segment in in the in the long haul which now i'm realizing actually represents several different aspects of this hunt uh where you're going across the river which is really cool so uh, folks i hope you go check that video out and you'll get to see what it actually looked like yeah uh, and then also the scenes with all the guys around the truck and having some beers is like as a viewer, I, I felt like I'm, I was in that moment. Like I'm right there with you guys because we've been in those moments before. And that really is, that's like the pinnacle of, of our sport, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and our, our deer camp is, you, you know, it's just a two room camp. There's no running water. There is electricity. Um, but it's just a simple camp with the walls covered in photos from the last 40 years of hunting all over it and every time i'm up there we're you know going through it when new people come up um you know going through telling stories based off of those photos and just I, it's it's like a it's it's like a big family gathering and then just and friends as well that join us there i mean i i look forward to to camp just as much as i do the the hunting part of it well, there's a lot of there's a lot of heritage there and it, it almost if people haven't experienced camp life, and I'm not saying that it's not, it camp life varies based on whether you're from the South, the North, the East, the West, but, you know, camp life in and around here, I mean, I think you hit the nail right on the head. It, it's almost like this roughing it location in most situations, but the, I love the photo story because that's a history. I mean, technically that's like a little museum of hunting history and heritage in that area yeah oh it definitely is and it's funny to look at it too of like you know back in the 90s um what you know what the big deer were at that point and then seeing how pennsylvania has has grown and just it's it's really cool and and the, and the thing is like i mean we celebrate any deer that comes through there someone could shoot a doe and we're we're just as pumped about it and everybody's you know enjoying it just as much it's just a place for for everybody to go and it's funny because like you know with the story with that deer it all started with being at camp and talking and deciding to hunt together and no one knew that 24 hours later it'd be a completely you know different different story as far as uh, how the season went to that point i want to go back and touch on a couple of things that were said uh, one of the things you said was that the uh, the one fellow had forgotten or lost a, a trail camera that he had out there and people might be listening. He's saying, well, how could you ever lose track of a trail camera? And I personally have done that and, and been in a stand <laughs> and, and saw a camera. And I says, who the heck has a camera in my spot? 
and then went down to find that it had been there from a year or two before. And the way you used cameras, I wouldn't doubt you've done that a time or two as well. Oh, I, I, I definitely, I just found one this past winter when I was out, I was actually pulling cameras cause I haven't been to that spot in a while. And, and I mark them all. I have them all on my phone. It's just, uh, sometimes I, I lose track of it and I, I do run probably, I think I'm around 35 cameras right now. And, and the way I, I, my scouting kind of strategy goes in the spring, I'll find new areas and I don't plan on hunting it for a year or two. I'll just leave cameras up and come back the next spring and see what, see what was on there and adjust them a little bit and try to learn the areas before I go all in on it. So yeah, sometimes I do, do lose track of them, especially cause I, I hunt all over the, um, the Northern part of the state for the most part, but I, just a whole bunch of different locations and counties. So I, I have them spread out quite a bit. So Bo, this might not be, or might not pertain to you, but back when I was younger, back in aught six, when chickens had lips a long time um, ago, I know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we didn't have the technology that is available to us now. And, and I did, I hunted a lot up in the mountains of Pennsylvania. I mean, up you know, north of Ridgeway and Owl's Nest area up there and even up into New York and the Allegheny State Park. And, and we're talking like tens of thousands to almost hundreds of thousands of acres in some contiguous blocks for the most part. And I'm telling you what, I've gotten turned around and lost a couple of times to the point of where, you know, if I wouldn't have had a map and a compass on me, I would have, who knows what would have been the end result. But have you ever got turned around up in the mountains, even with technology nowadays? Yeah, I, I have. When I get too confident in knowing my routes in the dark, especially coming out, um, it's 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 really funny. It's even I mean, even with having technology, if if you not looking at it or using it or know how to use it correctly, but I've I've one hundred percent been turned around, especially especially in my younger days before I had um, some of that technology before I had a GPS and now, you know, I use my phone, um, for that. And, and now I always carry a, a backup battery pack. Cause if your phone dies and, uh, um, yeah, the, but there, there's one thing to be said about learning it, you know, without having to completely rely on it, because I always joke, like when I'm driving on the road anymore, I just plug wherever I'm going into my phone and just look at the map. I don't look at it ahead of time. Like, you used to do where you pull out the map or, and you're, you're figuring out your routes based off of looking at a map. You know, I think there's a lot to be said about learning that, uh, that place, but you're right. It's, it could be, it's so easy to be able to, to get turned around if you're not careful with it. So I'm all about safety. So give me your short list, like, or actually me or in the listener out there, but what are some things that you would never go into the woods without, whether it be scouting or hunting? Um, so I, I shouldn't say I always carry this one thing, but I have been more and more, and that's a Garmin inReach, which is a, a satellite community texting communicator, because uh, a lot of the places that you go in these remote places don't have cell service. So that's one thing that you can text anywhere via satellite. Um, so it's just nice to be able to have that as if you get into trouble and it also has an SOS button if you were in really serious trouble. So that's one thing that I've been carrying with me quite a bit. I always have, like I said, an extra battery pack for my phone. So I have the mapping system there. I always carry a small first aid kit 
that's inside of my pack. It doesn't have a whole lot, just enough that I need in an emergency to be able to, to get out. Um, so I, I use that all the time. Um, and then if I'm climbing to a tree, some sort of a tree harness um, system, now I hunt out of a saddle about hundred percent of the time. So I'm always tied off, but I always have some sort of um, lifeline or, or harness to attach to the tree. I will not get in a tree without it because of, because of those different situations. And then just other, other than that, I always have a pistol with me and I always have a knife with me um, for those different types of situations. You just never know what, what you're going to be able to, to get into. And when I do go to a place, I always send a map to my dad to let him know where I am before I go in there. Um, just because again, you, if you know, I go all over the place and I've kind of learned that from, from him as a kid, when, whenever he would go out in the woods, there'd be a topo map laying on the bar in the basement with a, you know, marker and note, like, this is, this is where I am if I don't come back, you know, an hour after, after dark. So, and, and it's funny when you said you're, you know, really into safety, that's what my profession is, what I do for a living. Um, environmental health and safety manager um, for a manufacturing facility. So I, I, I take that planning pretty seriously as well. Well, I mean, mother nature is nobody to mess with. And in some of these areas that you're talking about, just to, you know, give people uh, an idea in, of the scale and the scope is you could walk or, you know, even if you, if you could walk in a straight line, but with the terrain, the topography, all of those things, the, the treacherousness of it. I mean, early season, I mean, I know we do have rattlesnakes up there, but even something as simple as twisting an ankle, not having your medications with you, if you are on medications, um, food, water, or just enough to get you through. But these are areas that no one's going to a hear you. No one really wanders through there too often. But with that being said, have you seen a change in the amount of hunter encounters in, in the mountains more so than you did years ago because of this, you know, ultra super pinpoint focus on there in the media nowadays and in the hunting world. So I, I noticed like probably 15, 20 years ago had more hunting pressure than right now. Um, but it had dipped off, I'd say even 10 years ago. And then it started kind of ramping back up as things got more popular, but in the, Honestly, it's still not, I mean, there's so much area that I can go a long time without seeing people and it does happen. And sometimes people are working. It seems like, I don't, I want to say people are working harder now, or maybe they just have the maps to understand they can get in these places without getting lost, but I am seeing more people, but it's still not bad. Like I can still get away um, from, from people in, in that regard. So uh, it's definitely increasing, but I don't think that it's increasing to a detrimental number because I think anybody that hunts here, it, they really, really have to want it and they might do it one or two times and be done unless they're, unless they're fully invested in it. That's, that's what I would say. The deer numbers aren't extremely high and it's not necessarily easy. So you really, really have to want it. <laughs> Yeah. I'm telling you what, uh, I mean, years ago, I used to have to get up at between one thirty, two o'clock in the morning just to drive up North and then, then hike in from there. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a place I scouted this spring that it was a good two and a half miles back in the woods, but the train that 
get there was ridiculous. And, and I was actually, I was, I was there filming with, um, with my camera guy for this mountain buck scouting series that, that you guys had referred to earlier on my YouTube channel. And we were, we were filming for it. And I said to him, I said, Justin, I don't even want to hike back in here every morning, you know, for three, four days in a row. Cause like, you know, you have an hour and a half hike in, in the morning in the dark, plus the drive before that. And then to come back out and it's an area where you can't pack in and camp. So it's, uh, it, it yeah, it makes it difficult. You had said earlier, and you've said a lot of things actually that I was going to ask you. So that's perfect. <laughs> you use the, use the phrase, we live for that moment when that deer's on the ground. And so this, uh, the type of hunting you do clearly it's not for everybody, right? I mean, I'm not sure it's even for me and I feel like I physically can still do it, um, but it's not for everybody. And it seems to me that you have to have, and I think I heard you say this in one of your, uh, one of your videos, you have to always have the confidence that it could happen at any moment. And I think you also has to have to have just an, a gigantic amount of patience on top of the willingness to physically drive yourself to the extent that you do. So, um, is that a fair statement? It's, it's not for everybody that this is really the amount of effort that goes into this is really, really unique. The opportunity is there for everybody, but it's not for everybody. And I, you know, encourage people to try it. Um, but it definitely, it takes a different mindset and you have to enjoy the process. If you're, if you're just enjoying that, that moment that we live for when an animal is down, then that's not for you. That's an amazing part of it. And that's like the pinnacle of the entire thing, but you have to enjoy the entire process and learning and everything up to it because it's, it's going to take time to figure out and it's going to take effort and it's going to take some different sacrifice to be able to, to be able to do it. So I, yeah, I think you're, I think you're spot on with that. I smiled when you said that you have to enjoy the process because I, I coach football and I'm always telling the guys, you better enjoy the process because we practice four days a week and we only have a game on Friday. Exactly right. I mean, I, I scout probably 90, 95% of the time or probably even close 95 to 99% of the time versus the little bit of time I actually hunt. So that's, I mean, that's my, that's the way I do it, but I, I just love the process and, and I think you have to. So I want to ask you a tactic question, and then we're going to bring you down the home stretch. We're going to talk about where people can find your stuff, but uh, tell me one tactic that you use that people might be surprised to hear that might be a little bit off the beaten path or not what everybody reads that they should be doing when it comes to hunting older deer. Um, I would say using calls in Pennsylvania, using grunt, just basically grunt calls and bleak calls. I don't rattle much, but I've heard so many times that in a, pr a pressured place like Pennsylvania that you cannot call deer and calling is a huge part of my strategy when it comes to hunting deer, especially during the pre-rut and the rut. And, uh, and I, I guess I can even say an, another point to that would be um, hunting from the ground and not being afraid to still hunt that I learned from my dad. We're trying to just you know, if the deer aren't cooperating and you don't have that confidence that we we're talking about in your, in your spot that you can get on the ground and walk some of these logging roads. And, and I'll actually go through and break sticks and stomp on them and, and grunt and sound like a deer as you're going through it. And just some different types of things like that, that, 
and that I directly learned from my dad when I would, when I would be tired and not want to go, I, when I was like 17, 18, and I didn't want to go into the the stand again, getting up at three o'clock in the morning and hiking in, he's like, sleep in a little bit and hunch your way in at daybreak and, you know, you know, hunch your way in. And that, that strategy, I still use that to this, this day. And, and I uh, think it can be effective. And I, I don't think it's something that uh, is really widely talked about. Yep. Love it. Love it. Hunt from the ground. I keep telling myself every year, I want to do that more. Um, and I, I know you, we, we know you're a saddle hunter as well. Mike and I transitioned to that last year. We love it. And I, there's really yeah. no other way to get into a tree covering the type of terrain that you do. So, yeah. So let's end with this. We, we could do a whole other show on how the, on the West part of this, right? We've talked primarily about the East here in whitetails, but you obviously have a real love and passion for the West. Um, as someone I used to live out there and, and hunted there a bit myself, I totally get that as an Easterner that moved West for a while. Um, but that's another show, I think, but let's talk about just your, your whole deal. Like what you're doing with, with, uh, East meets West hunt. Uh, also your content, I referenced it earlier. I mean, you have just so much really good, useful educational information on your site, even one, uh, that talks about how to hunt elk in Pennsylvania and what your strategy is for putting in for tags. Yeah. Um, you cover a lot of ground and, and you have an extensive website. Uh, you have some really cool merchandise on your website, YouTube channel, and you're trying to work a, a, a regular job. I don't know. I don't know where you find the time, but just tell us about all of those resources and why do you do it? I mean, what, what drives you to put all that effort in? Well, yeah, when I, when I started uh, East Meets West Hunt, like when I started the podcast, first thing was I wanted to learn more about hunting out West. I, there was a gap in information of like, there's a lot of great Western hunting podcasts and videos and stuff, but I felt like it was for like, you had to be on step three already to start really gaining it. And I wanted to talk to some of these really successful people. Um, and also be, I was like, all right, well, if I want to talk to these people, you know, that was the selfish part of it. And then if I throw a headset on and record it, I can help others that were like it. And that's that idea stemmed from that first article I wrote that when I shared it on my Facebook and Instagram, you know, years ago that people were like, oh, I wish I could do that, but I didn't, I don't have the money. I don't have the time, all of this, you know, stuff. So I realized that there was just an education gap there. And I, I wasn't the expert in that, but I knew that I could ask the questions that other people wanted to to know. So that's where that part of it came from. And then the, the other part, which is the, the Appalachian whitetail hunting was just that I've never, I couldn't find any resources that were really able to talk about big woods hunting. Most of it was farm country and, you know, different, different things along those lines. And, and I just had, had grown up doing it and had, a, you know, like I talked about earlier family that was so into it. And as I started talking about those things, realizing that there's a lot of people, especially in the more populated areas like cities that, that want to get away and want to get away from the, the hustle and bustle of everyday life and get away to some of these places and be able to have adventures like you would have in the West, but closer to home. And 
so once I realized that, like, that's where the educational part of that came into it. I just, I love seeing that people are going out there and doing it. And I strive to, I learn a ton from doing the the podcast and then being able to see other people doing that as well. And then that turned into doing videos uh, specifically on the whitetail side of things, just on how my strategy is, you know, my, my way is, is not the right way by any means. It's just the way that I do it. And, and just explaining how to break down some of these big landscapes and, and, you know, make it more manageable and approachable for people. So that was my goal is to be able to show that if you do want to work for it, there's ways to be able to do it. And, and if you want to put in the work, you can, you can do it. And I was hoping to be, you know, a resource to be able to, to help out there. And so, so then, you know, I have the, the podcast that's uh, East meets West hunt that's available anywhere that you can find podcasts is what my website's probably the best place to find everything, which is just East meets West hunt.com. And then the, my articles that, that I'd write is for just a, a bunch of different places, but most recently has been meteor and free range American, which is black rifles, uh, black rifle coffee companies, um, uh, outdoor outlet, I guess you can put it. Um, I just started writing for those, those guys as well. And yeah, I just wanted to be able to show that these adventures are possible for someone that's an everyday working human being and doing it as far as how I manage my time with it. I don't know. And I don't, don't do it really that well, <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to, uh, trying to learn, uh, to be able to do that throughout working and, and everything else but it it's funny because with uh with this type of stuff if if i wanted to do it if i wanted a side job that was to make money i would do something else because not i i make i make money doing this that helps fund my hunting and everything else but it's not a a get rich type of deal so you really do have to love love doing it to to stay with it for a while Oh, not financially rich, but rich in memories for sure. Oh, oh yeah. 110%. Well, speaking of your time, uh, we want to be cognizant of that. We appreciate you coming on here. We're glad you do what you do because we're all benefiting from it. And uh, I'll put an additional plug in to go check out Bo's content. Uh, It is really, really good stuff, folks. And you're missing out if you don't see it already. So Bo, Continued success to you. You are uh, absolutely a rising star in this industry, whether or not you uh, are trying to be or you believe that about yourself or not. You definitely are. And it's our pleasure to have you on the show. And thank you for giving us your time. Yeah. And, and thank you guys. You asked some really great questions and, and uh, appreciate you having me on. Mike, as you said, right before we brought Bo in, he's an interesting guy. And he definitely is. Uh, the passion really comes through. It was fun talking with the matter of fact. Uh, we, we kept talking after the interview and then we're next thing, you know, we're exchanging trail camera pictures and other things. And so that really, really got me just continued to motivate me as we head toward our hunting seasons here. And I think one of the things that's really cool about Bo is just his credibility I mean, he is doing it. He's not talking about doing it. He's out there doing it. He's doing the mountain hunting thing. He has results and he's providing a lot of really great free information for people to go out. Anybody can find his stuff on his website, on his YouTube channel. And I just had a lot of fun with that one. Yeah. I think he's, he's really interesting and he's going to be somebody to keep our eye on. Uh, 
I really enjoyed the conversation. I think he brings a lot to the table and I, I really see a lot of good things lined up for him in the future. Yeah, it was definitely a great interview. Really enjoyed that. So, Hey, I got to say last time we did the show, I said, there's a good chance my food plots will be planted by the time we do the next show while well, they did not get planted. However, uh, I do plan to get out tomorrow. We had some rain, unexpected rain. It was so hot and dry. I was afraid to plant them. And then lo and behold, the skies opened up for the last three days and we've had torrential downpours every single day for the last three days. So I'm going to give it a shot tomorrow. I saw some prep work to do this weekend. Um, I'm still a week out from mine, so I'm not really feeling the pinch just yet, but I do feel that, that nervousness of hurry up, you know, you're going to run out of time, but uh, the summer you have to go with what mother nature gives you and jump when you have a chance to jump and you're going to jump tomorrow. And hopefully I have, we'll have a chance to jump here in the next couple weeks and get some seed in the ground and start pushing toward that, that fall and get ready. I think there's always that sense of nervousness. Are you going to miss the window? Or am I going to go too early? Am I going to go too late? And so sometimes it just is what it is. You got to get the seed in the ground and forget about it. I guess just like your retirement plan, right? So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Looking forward to doing that tomorrow. Uh, I did get a tree stand hung. So there I'm, I'm doing something that's related to hunting. So that's getting a little closer. And I, as we were about to record here, I noticed I've got a couple packages on the porch of some things that I needed to get a little more prepared for the season. So uh, I did at least get that done. Well, it's getting here and it's just about organization. And the one thing I will say to everybody, and this might be preaching to the choir, but, you know, with food plots, particularly, there's always things that you can do later in the season. There's ways that you can recover. And a lot of that information is available on the Deer Association's website. But um, yeah, don't let my anxiety get to you. <laughs> if it doesn't work out, if you put seed in the ground, it doesn't work out. There's a lot of options moving forward, actually limited options moving forward to even planting in October and going with straight cereal grain. So um, good luck to everybody out there that's putting their food in the ground. I wish you the best with that. Well, I think that's going to do it for us here today, Mike. Again, thank you everybody for listening. If you're not already, please consider subscribing to the show. If someone passed this along to you for the first time and you're not a subscriber, please do that. Uh, you can find us anywhere, virtually anywhere you get podcasts these days. So Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Stitcher. Those are the most popular. You can certainly find us there. Or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and you can subscribe right from there. Please also leave us a rating, which will help uh, the show climb the charts and be visible to more listeners. We've gotten ratings, but I'd like to get more. So uh, help us out with that, if you would, please. Uh, also, for more information about the National Deer Association, please visit our website at deerassociation.com. Uh, from there, you can become a member, sign up for a free newsletter that comes out every Thursday morning. Some good stuff in that. And you can also enjoy our endless content on all matters related to wild deer conservation, habitat, hunting, and conservation policy. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Once again, thanks for listening, folks. National Deer Association, we are United for Deer.